Hello, welcome back to IVFU. Today you're going to meet my incredible friend, Alex Olson. She's a poet, an activist, a tenured professor. She's queer, she's here, she's sincere. Good thing I'm not the poet in this conversation. And she's a single mom of two who can't be pigeonholed and is never predictable. And be sure to stay for the after party for her inspiring spoken word performance. Now we just have to convince Alex she's as cool as we know she is. I just have to say, like, before we get going, I feel like I, my story is not that exciting. I mean, it's, <laughs> like the broader story about like our semen and our sperm donor and like the story about queer kinship yes. is, is interesting, yes. but it doesn't all involve IVF. IVF is one oh, piece no. of that broader story. IVF, it's called IVFU, but it, we've done stories about adoption. We've done stories about an egg donor. There's all kinds of pieces of this that have nothing to do with IVF. Okay. Yay. Well, I'm so glad you're here to do this with me today. Me too. Alex Olson, the wonderful Alex Olson. To me, you've had many lives. You are a slam poet. I think maybe you don't call it that. What do you call it? <laughs> I usually say spoken word artist because, word artist. Um, yeah, because slam was sort of the... This, the open mic version of spoken yeah, word. Yeah. <laughs> and then spoken word became the genre. It sort of, yeah, okay. it, it broadened, it broadened the kind of universe of to which slam belonged. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> you are a feminist, a writer, a college professor, mm-hmm, a PhD, mm-hmm. a mother. So mm-hmm. I'm putting all these words on you, but how would you describe yourself both professionally and personally? Hmm. I never thought I would be this much of a cheese ball, but I definitely identify as a mother. Yeah. Um, first and foremost right now, I think just because it takes up so much of my psychic energy. Um, (laughs) I'm also a person who is romantically not attached, um, at the moment. And so I also just feel like my kids get so much of my sort of heart right now too. Yeah. So your heart is full with Mm -hmm. motherhood, with your children Mm -hmm. and what, yeah. I was going to say that, that motherhood for me, it feels like so much of also a, an ethical and political project. So it doesn't just feel like a kind of um, kinship attachment. It also feels like it is a challenge every day, politically, ethically, for myself. It's an instructive daily praxis. Wow. So, and let's, before we go into that, because I definitely have more questions about that, how do you describe your career? Yeah. So I'm an assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Emory University. Um, I got my PhD in political theory with a advanced certificate in feminist studies um, in 2018. And um, I was in grad school for eight years, which is the time during which I had both kids and then moved to Atlanta for my first tenure track position um, in 2018, right when I got my degree with an eight month old and a four and a half year old. And by yourself. I moved here with my partner, but we, uh, okay. we yeah, but we, uh, we got divorced about four months after moving here. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I'm guessing if you were about to be divorced, maybe things weren't so smooth and helpful as that move was happening. That's, that's right. Right. That'd be, that'd be an apt description. <laughs> A bit rocky there. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. And so in the midst of all of that, where did you, when did you think about becoming a mom? Did you always want to have kids? Was it always something you'd get to eventually? Were you sort of surprised when you wanted kids or how did that start? 
You know, it's sort of, I mean, it's an emotionally complicated story, I think. Uh, but in brief, I always wanted to be a mom. Um, but along the way during my, as my career was kind of taking off and I was traveling around the world and just feeling the sort of fire and energy of being a globetrotter and being a sort of radical activist, I also became an alcoholic ah. and it was um, severely disabling um, in terms of my capacity, I think, to just um, plan and to and to to think beyond the day, um, which is ironic because in Alcoholics Anonymous, we talk about living in the day, um, <laughs> but it's a really different kind of daily living. Um, so I got sober in, let's see, 11 and a half years ago. So I think part of what it was, was that I always wanted to be a mother, but I knew that I could not be a mother as an active alcoholic. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's like the, a big piece of it was like, yeah. it was almost like a gift to me, a gift you think, to myself. Was there some fear about being a mother or is that unrelated? Do you think? Oh, I think there was fear about so much. There yeah. was just fear about life, just deep levels and layers of fear that had to be really, um, untangled. Yeah. I think I had decided to have a baby at the moment when I was able to really look inside and figure out at what level my internal reservoir had filled. Um, and I think I was like, okay, now I've got enough for me and for, and for somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. And did you have role models when you were starting out planning to have kids, becoming a mother? Were, were there people you looked to that you were like, oh, I want to do it like them? Yeah. Um, you mean in terms of like the technicalities of it or the actual or both. being a parent? Yeah. Both. Yeah. I mean, my mom is just so together as a person, as a mom. She is just, she's a professor. She's written a thousand books. She is an activist. And I think she just really took care of herself. Um, and she took care of herself in a way that never made me feel left out, but also made me realize that you could be your own full whole person and also be a parent. So, um, you know, she, she had times when she, she went to conferences when I was three weeks old, she left me to go do like a, you know, two week long, big fellowship. You know, she was, wow. she was, she was someone who was on the go. And I think that was inspiring because there was no way I was going to be a parent and all of a sudden like put my whole life on hold. Right. Um, that was not appealing to me in the slightest. Right. Um, and I'm so glad I didn't now. Um, uh, in terms of like actually how to actively have a family, I'm a researcher. I I just <laughs> there's I don't think there's any one person in my life I look to per se. But if this podcast had been available, I would have listened to every single episode. I mean, right. I read everything: how to have a lesbian family, how lesbians make family, queer kinship, and family. I mean, every book there was, every website. Um, I you know, I had so many documents about all the various options. Um, and were there any that jumped out? to you or that you remember specifically as being particularly helpful? Well, we started out with a sperm bank. So I think we spent, I spent every night in between writing like my graduate comps, my comp exams, <laughs> and I would finish a sentence and then hop on the sperm bank and finish another sentence and hop in. I was obsessive. Wow. Um, uh, you know, narrowing down so many conversations about race, about religious, you know, what matters, what counts, what would be fair to the child, so many ethical concerns between my partner and, and I. And, um, and then all of a sudden one night, I think I was like in the middle of, I think I was sleeping and I woke up out of a sleep and was like, I, I think I want to use somebody that I know. Who do I know? Mm -hmm. And then started obsessively making lists of all the men that I knew, um, or people who had sperm and asking people in my program, 
old friends calling up people out of the blue. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They were, they were all itemized and bullet yeah. pointed. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and why, why did you want someone, you know, that's interesting because with a sperm bank, you almost have more control, right? Everybody's yeah. diagnosed and cataloged down to the gene cell, right? That's but right. if it's a friend, you might be coming into it with some unknowns. You know, I think just because as a person who was queer, there were already so many unknowns about how to be a family. I was also partnered with somebody who was um, contemplating gender transition and ultimately did. And oh, wow. I think there was just so... I don't know, so many unknowns that for some reason there was something that compelled me to want this future person, this future child, um, to have access to the person, to the physical person. Um, in their, like in their regular lives, not yeah. just on a database when they want to know what gene makeup they have, but yeah. a real I mean, person. Yeah. And it yeah. wasn't, I mean, I certainly thought very long and hard about it. It wasn't like, I, it was obvious to me that I didn't want to go to a bank and I certainly would have easily had I not found somebody. Um, but all of a sudden this person came to mind and I called him up and I asked him, um, was he a good friend or was he shocked when you called? <laughs> no, he was, a both. Good, yeah, he was a, he was a pretty good friend and he had been a spoken word poet. His name is Steve Coleman and he was the funniest person I knew and one of the kindest and really smart and just had a like wonderful family. His mom is a lesbian. Um, his family is multiracial, multigendered, multiple, wow. multiple sexualities. And so it just felt like, okay, if there's going to be like a big assortment family, this is like the big Rubik's cube that I can fit into. Right. So was there a moment, like a line in the sand when you suddenly, you knew you wanted kids, but there was a moment, was there a moment when you thought, okay, now I am ready. I'm ready to start trying. Was there a day or? It was, it was a year after I'd been sober. Yeah. Yeah. It was almost exactly a year to the day. Um, I got this tattoo on my arm, which you can't see, but I can describe oh, it. It says yeah. Zager, Z-A-G-E-R. And it um, is the, my, my grandmother's maiden name. And it was the, the maiden name that every, all the great aunts, all the Jewish great aunts, they used Zager to describe when you'd done something like brave or courageous. Oh, and I so, love it. Um, yeah. So they'd be like, oh, that's very Zager of you. You know, they all lived like in the Bronx. And Lots so, yeah, so much chutzpah. So, um, so at this point we'd had coffee with Steve a couple of times. He had talked to, um, his parents. He talked to a psychologist. He talked to his identical twin brother because of wow. course that was going to be interesting. Oh my gosh. Also. Right. Of course. Yeah. And was he um, partnered at the time? Um, he had been divorced for a couple of years. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So after I'd been sober a year, I went and I got a tattoo and I think we hopped on a train the next day, um, to go down to where Steve was living in this little apartment in New York. And so finally we had this, we had lawyers, we hired a lawyer for each of us because even though we are all incredibly anti-bureaucracy, anti-carceral state, <laughs> anti-legalities, it just felt like why try to mess with the friendship? Right. Even anarchists need lawyers sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even anarchists are not living in the anarchy. Yeah. Right. So, um, so we, we got lawyers and had everything really, really clearly delineated about responsibilities and, you know, he had done zero responsibilities, zero, um, rights. Uh, but there, you know, we had this kind of also tacit conversation about that was underlying all of it, that he would always be 
like available as a person to love this child. And did he want um, any rights? Like, did he want to be able to see the child or anything like that? Or he was happy to be sort of the silent partner in the whole thing? Yes, the latter. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is exactly what we wanted. Yeah. Um, and Jamie, my partner, and I had spent lots of time um, doing lots of self-analysis about our relationship and what it would mean to have this person that we knew be the donor. Um, and especially in terms of like feeling threatened by a third person who was <clears throat> a man, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. and what that would look like to have this kind of ghost in our relationship. Um, and then of course we did a lot of physical analysis. So we, <laughs> we decided to really try it as, um, a totally independent project, um, outside of any kind of medicalization model. Wow. Um, so, um, so we got a salsa jar, we sanitized it. We, <laughs> I like that you add that one detail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lest we think well, it's we made so judgment. clear in my mind, this Tostitos glass <laughs> jar just really well rinsed that led to my child. <laughs> so we tucked it in a bag. We got on the train. We went down to Brooklyn and Steve was there and he actually was on a date at the time. So he told his, the person he was on a date with, I have to go home and help my friend with something. Never told her what it was. He ran home. We lit a candle. We did like a little group huddle hug. And Jamie, I just remember her like him now, but uh, at the time, her um, outstretched arm and shoving it in Steve's face and said, good luck. And he said, I'll do my best. (laughs) And he went to the bathroom and like a few minutes later came out. Yeah. And then Jamie inserted the sperm with, uh, he'd gotten a bag of, um, uh, some speculum, speculums and what's it called? The, uh, the little uh, thing like you use. Syringe, to do the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bag of syringes from target. And, um, <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. It did that. And then the next morning we were asleep on Steve's futon and he was asleep next to us and we woke up and he, he just saw my eyes. He knows what an overachiever I am. And he was like, again, and I was like, just one more time. <laughs> so back in the bathroom that morning, one more. Wow. Legs, legs up for about five minutes. And I was pregnant three weeks later. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. And, and was there a conversation with you and Jamie over who would carry the child or was it always known it would be you? It was a three minute debriefing. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie was so, um, so on the fence about, um, his gender at the time and Mm -hmm. really in a complicated place about his body and what all of his various body parts meant and would go on to have, top surgery and gender affirmation surgery. So I think it was pretty clear that that wasn't going to be something that would feel comfortable. It felt right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Which worked out fine because it was never even, it never even occurred to me that somebody else would carry the baby. I would have been open to the conversation, but it hadn't, I hadn't occurred to me. Right. So now you're pregnant with your Mm -hmm. son, your son's in, right? Yeah. His Mm -hmm. name. Was there anything about that that surprised you being pregnant and and the birth? Did you sort of struggle with identity at that point too, having been, you know, sort of the the out lesbian political activist that you've always been? Suddenly now you're becoming a mom, which can tend to be a more traditional role as much as we fight it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I did. I think it was really complicated and really hard for me in terms of gender. Um, I think that Um, I already think that gender is so messy and so hard to understand once you start to complicate it politically, it, it, it becomes a complicated personal identity. Um, There's never really a right fit because there's no, 
because it's not like it's, it's a socially constructed thing in so many ways. So, um, and I think people's gender changes over time and with age and with experience and with really in relation to others. And so, um, you know, I, and it is so feminized, you know, it was like it. So I would say, well, that part was kind of a struggle, even finding clothes that felt right. And Mm, yeah, just, and then wearing big oversized t-shirts and feeling really schlumpy and feeling bad about my body. Um, feeling, yeah, feeling fat, feeling, yeah, I think that was hard. I, I, I loved, I loved being pregnant. I loved the actual process of it, but, um, what did you love about it? Um, I think I just thought it was cool. It just felt like, (laughs) you know, I'm an only child. And I think there was just something about the fact that I was like literally using my body as an instrument to, to grow a, an extension of what would become more kinship that felt cool. Wow. Yeah. That's Um, really interesting. And, and it's, and it's so true what you say about the socially constructed gender roles. I mean, this is something I continue to struggle with. And, you know, I think I tend to think maybe it's because I never carried the baby. You know, we had a surrogate because I was unable to carry him, but I don't know if that's really the reason. I think since having a child, I have become this like very angry, raging feminist because I'm so mm-hmm. hyper aware now of all the cultural mom focus and mom, you know, advertising and imagery and conversation and language involved around moms. And yeah. I don't feel like one of those people. And yeah, it, it, it's something that I really struggle with. And I would, and I'm a straight person who probably shouldn't have a problem with that, let's say. Yeah. Okay according to those same cultural norms, right? Yeah. So I can imagine coming from a place of sort of in your in your everyday life and in your career and in your identity, you are breaking down those established norms and trying to constantly promote that idea of a, a range and a spectrum and the openness of, of how gender works. And then to suddenly be like, oh, she's, a, you know, if you're walking down the street and you're pregnant, all people know about you is you're a mom to be walking down mm-hmm. the street. You don't mm-hmm. see what you see in yourself. So I would think mm-hmm. that's a moment of conflict. Yeah, which I think extends to having children. I mean... And then you have the children, right. Yeah. If your children are are part of how you're perceived, to what extent do you get to try to shift that perception? And to what extent is that not fair because your children are not you? They're not actually an extension of you. Right. And so originally you weren't planning to have two kids. You were only going to have one. Absolutely. There was no doubt. It was just one. It was just one. I mean, before I met Jamie, it was going to be me and this kid and a backpack hiking around the world. I mean, that was my image. (laughs) Right. Um, So what changed? What changed? What changed? Um, Because you have two children. Just I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I was so delighted by the experience of the first. I think it was just so interesting. I was compelled. It was, it was unequivocal. It was, it was, it was just like, I need to do this one more time. So what was the moment when you knew it it was time for number two? I think sin was about three. Um, and that's when my relationship was in a terrible place. We were separated Uh and I wasn't sure if Jamie was going to be on board as a second parent or how that was going to work because we were really working through whether we were going to stay together or not. And it was really complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also really felt supported by a huge group of friends 
that are my family, that are my powerhouses, um, feminists and people who show up. Mm-hmm. And we sort of had a lot of conversations around like, we can do this. Like we will be your family. We're going to be there for you. This, the second baby will not grow up with one parent. The second baby will have as much love as, as in a full village. Um, yeah. So tell me about the journey to have gray. This was quite a different, yeah, took a little so, bit more than a Tostitos sausage jar, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point I was 40. Um, I was about to, I was working on my dissertation Um, and I knew that I was going to round the corner with my dissertation and be in a place where I would have to go in the job market. Um, we were pretty not doing well financially. So I knew there was also like this really small moment in which we could use my health insurance, which was going to pay for IVF. Um, I had my hormone levels checked and they were, they were not primed to have a baby with a salsa jar. So, um, (laughs) Yeah. So I decided to do IVF. Was um, it your friend again, the donor? Same donor? Yeah, okay. yeah. So I called him and he said, well, I have an appointment to have my, what's it called? The vasectomy. Oh yeah. Yeah. He said, Ooh. I have a vasectomy scheduled in a couple of weeks. So I guess I'll have to change that. And, uh, <laughs> but I'm on board. <laughs> and I, I, I like how cooperative <laughs> he is. The first he's, time he's on a date. So he goes home early so he can help <laughs> you guys. The second time he puts you, you know, he gets you right in there before his vasectomy. Good thing you called when you did. You caught him in the pre-vasectomy window. That's important. <laughs> he's extremely easygoing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I went to the IVF clinic and, um, the doctor was, um, very compassionate. And she said, I'm looking at your insurance policy and it looks like you have to have evidence that you've been trying to have a baby. Wow. Um, and I That's... said, well, how am I going to do that? <laughs> right. They put a camera in your bedroom or what is that? You have to have shown that you've tried to have sex. It's like the natural way <laughs> six wow. times or something. Um, and, um, and she said, she kind of winked, you know, and she said, yeah. but I will help you figure this out, but you're going to have to demonstrate that Steve is your partner. Is he your partner? And I said, well, no. And she said, is he though? Is he your partner? And I was like, yeah. She was like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is really enraging though. You had written this to me and I'm really, Mm -hmm. I mean, this seems like a very deliberate attempt to prevent same-sex couples from having children. Because if you prevent them from using IVF as a tool without trying original I mean who else would that speak to directly it's you know I mean obviously insurance companies are always trying not to pay for stuff that's their yeah. mo but um, yeah. I'm amazed that that's legal that just seems like discriminatory to me it, it is discriminatory I wonder if that's at the heart of it I, I, I think that it's probably capitalist I mean mm. I, I usually look for profit motivation before I go to anger <laughs> direct homophobia but right, they're right. usually they're usually linked but, yes. um, <laughs> exactly. Wow. Okay. So she says, so wink, wink, he's your boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. So I called him again and he at this point now has a very serious girlfriend. And I said, how do you feel about being my boyfriend throughout this process? It could be really long process. And he said, I have to talk to girlfriend. And he called me back and said, I'm your boyfriend. So wow. He was still living in New York, so he had to come up to Massachusetts. And also, as I don't know if you know, but it's, I'm sure you do since you run this podcast on this topic, but it's a very, they want you to do a lot of stuff. There yeah. are many tasks and many pokies and also many workshops and like instructional videos. And it's like a very, 
Yeah. Um, and lots of things to sign off. Legal. On. I was just going to say the legal is, is like three months alone of just dealing with legal stuff usually. Yeah. yeah. And even, but, but for him too, he had to do all kinds of things and drink Ugh. things and poke things and get blood taken and samples. And he had to come up and do lots of workshops with me. And we had to sit, you know, holding hands through like three hour seminars where we wow. learned all about the risks and limitations of this practice. And, um, and also we had to sign things that say, like, if one of us dies, what happens to the embryos? Did you guys sign stuff like that too? Uh, yeah, we did. Yeah. yeah. You had to make right. those kinds of decisions. Whereas he was like, well, but I'm not really in this. So that's right. going to dictate the answer to that question. Yeah. That's right. And we had to do it without my partner who Ugh, right. was the other half of this who couldn't be a part of it. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. So that must have been a struggle as well. Was it a struggle for him? your partner think, as well? I think or? so. Yeah. yeah. I think it was, I think he felt pretty left out. Um, even though he understood the the broader goal. Right. Um, but even things like when I went to go get my eggs retrieved, you know, Steve was the one who was there with me. And so oh Jamie dropped us off and we hopped out of the car and Steve had to fill out forms for me. And at one point he was like, what's your birthday? Because <gasps> <laughs> I should know, but I don't. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is really, it feels so just archaic having to go through this. It's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. So, and that was like, yeah. That, I also um, wonder, sorry, I'm just going to go one back one yeah. second for the dynamics of the relationships. If you're, I don't need to focus too long on this, but if you're, yeah. if your real relationship is struggling and here is your friend who you have such a strong friendship with that he's willing to go through this with you. I wonder if there were any forces at play, you know, what, what, did you feel anything about that? Like, well, it's actually easier to be with my friend to be dealing with this right now. Or was it, did that not come up? Yeah, no, it felt, it felt much, it felt cleaner. Yeah. Much cleaner. And I think, I think also there were dynamics um, because of um, my ex-partner's gender identity. Oh, that's true. There's something different. I think for him that felt replaced by, yeah. a man who had sperm and was able to sort of wow. fulfill this function. I would never say that's true for all people who have, who identify as trans, mm-hmm. but for him, there was a particular struggle surrounding um, authenticity and gender identity versus expression and performance and wow. capacity. Yeah. Ah, okay. So you, so you go for your transfer. Yeah. So I, um, well, before, before the transfer happened, actually, um, the, the first round um, didn't really work. Um, oh. we, I didn't really produce any eggs that were robust enough to work, to, to use. And so um, we did a bunch of more uh, intrusive things mm-hmm. and um, figured out that I had a, um, a big cyst on my ovary. Oh, And so that was when I had to have surgery and was expecting to have the cyst removed and woke up from the surgery and they'd taken my whole ovary out. And I was, I was just so shocked. Um, I think I was even too in shock to feel sad. Yeah. Um, and they said, okay, well, now we have, you know, 50% chance because now you have one ovary. Oh my gosh, um, 50% so, of the chance we already had, which was not a big chance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think I was so focused on, I was so myopic that I, I didn't allow myself to even feel grief. I was just mm-hmm. like, okay, well, 50% is better than zero. Let's go. Right. Um, it was after, I think after when I was finally pregnant, I really collapsed emotionally for a little bit and felt like, oh my God, this was so close to not happening. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, then we tried a different, uh, protocol and I mean, it was like, I really had to get into feeling like a science experiment because so much of my work as a critical, um, uh, feminist is about critiquing science and about critiquing pathologization and the medical model. And here I was like the object of this domain. Wow. Uh, but once I sort of got into it and felt like I am a part of this project, not just the object, I'm also like researching and um, have some agency around these choices. Um, and I, I felt like working with women was also really helpful. The doctors were all women that I was working with. Was it surprising to you to feel, I think of you as an optimist, even though yeah. I know you, you know, you spent, yeah. I think in order to be an activist, someone has to be an optimist because you have to believe that change is possible and progress is possible. Um, yeah. So was it surprising to you to be in that dark place when this was happening? Were you losing some of your optimism or some of your hope? You know, I think that for me, my like default is is one step at a time. My, mm-hmm. my default is not hope. Hope is always kind of shades the background. I think mm-hmm. that that's my brand of optimism. I never think things are going to be great, but I always feel like there's hope on the horizon. Like mm-hmm. there's a possibility. I think about possibility, um, within, within limits, right? right. I, I like to recognize limits, recognize constraints, but have find the apertures, carve out the apertures. I think that's the activist um, spirit in me. And so that was sort of how I felt like day by day, moment by moment, step by step. Um, And also feeling very distracted by having a three-year-old, you know, I felt like I was true. You've got a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was also in AA, you know, at this, at this time and, and Mm -hmm. having meetings every day that were all about, you know, one day at a time. And that's how I was approaching my dissertation. That's how I was approaching parenting and, and pregnancy process and my partnership that was crumbling. So I think all of it was like, we never, we never know what's going to happen tomorrow. It sounds, as I say that, that sounds so like ethereal and cheesy, but it really Well, worked. but that's what one day at a time means, right? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's yeah. basically, you know, let's let's handle today. Let's get the most that we can out of today mm-hmm. and let's call it a success if we do, you know, mm-hmm. and then we mm-hmm. move on to tomorrow. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that time, I think that time worked the next time. Um, I had uh, something like 11 eggs um, that I produced and... I mean, I'll just never forget how they describe your body. You know, everything mm. becomes a metaphor. Like this egg looks like a round little guy and this tiny girl is da da da, you know. <laughs> someone, should, I'm sure someone has, but there's a lot of like good juicy material for some <laughs> feminist critical analysis. <laughs> um, yeah, so then then um, I think maybe four or five of those became embryos mm-hmm. and then um, one survived. And that's my daughter. But um, when I went in for the embryo transplant, the the person who was working on the egg, like in the lab, you know, the scientist lab person who probably doesn't have much bed bedside experience, um, yeah. she she was like profoundly uh, in herself, right? And she comes in with this picture of the embryo, and she just showed it to me with her eyes glowing, just ablaze, and she said. It was a B minus this morning and now it's an A. And she was just like, so in her little science. Was she smoking mind, at the same know? time that she said that? Or <laughs> she was, you made her sound like the Simpsons aunt. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah. So yeah. she put that sucker in and it implanted. Yeah. 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 Who I call my daughter. Um, <laughs> she's three and a half and her name is Gray. 
And how is your dating life now? Do you have one or are you just going to wait till things calm down? I mean, it's COVID. I think, I think, I think we're going to wait. I think we're waiting. Yeah. I'm waiting. (laughs) It's just not on the table. Yeah. Happily. happily. Okay, good. That's good. (laughs) So tell me about your kids. We've talked a little bit about them, but but tell tell me about them. What are they like? What are their personalities? And thanks for asking. I, um, my, so my, so Zenis will be eight in April. He is, um, extremely curious about people. Um, he's, uh, a good conversationalist. He asks lots of questions and follow-up questions. I love that about him. Um, he's also very funny. Um, and he's, um, he has a little bit of a fire. He's got a Uh little temper going on. (laughs) Um, my daughter is, um, she's just like gleeful. She's just joyful. She's, she's, um, just, yeah, she just prances around. She's in love with life. Um, she's demanding. She's definitely demanding. So I wonder too, if your kids, do you think your kids respond to you being there by yourself? In other words, could they be growing up a little faster maybe than kids that have two parents? Are they aware of their responsibilities maybe a little sooner? I mean, Um, I think that also because they're my like primary interlocutors, right? Meaning at dinner, it's the three of us talking to each other about our days and about life and about the world and about, you know, what's happening from the micro to the macro. So everything is put in kid terms, obviously, but we're talking about everything. Right. Uh, They're not talking to each other while I'm having an adult conversation. Um, That's true. They're fully, they're full participants in, in the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, that's probably why my son is so good at conversation in part, because he, you know, that he gets, he gets me all the time as an active conversationalist and dialogist. And yeah. Um, So do your kids have a dad figure? Do you think they need a dad figure? Where, where are men in their lives? Mm. Are there men in their lives? Yeah, there definitely are men in their lives. Um, Both trans men cis-identified men, genderqueer folks who are masculine of center. I mean, I think they have a real mix of people. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's of, cool. Okay. Yeah. We have, I, I decided when Zim was born to make, um, instead of having a godmother or godfather, because I'm you know, spiritual but not religious, I decided to make them compass points. And so there are eight of my closest friends who are their compass points. And oh. they each wrote them a letter when they were born that said, the direction that they would provide for them and the sorts of offerings that they, that they extended to them. Um, and they haven't read those letters, so I will give them to them when they're 16, but they have little lockets that have their names and my kids' names on them. Oh, I love that. And do you still, are you writing poetry? Are you, do you miss performing? At, I at do, all? you know, like I do things here and there. Um, so like I gave, um, well, I just recorded because of COVID, but, um, I, I'm the commencement speaker for Emery's one of, one of Emery's commencement speakers. So I wrote a, a poem for that and I performed it. Um, wow. And I, I use spoken word a lot in my classes when I teach. Um, and Your own teach, or other people's? Other word. people's, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. But just because I, I want to make sure that it's valued as a mode of knowledge production mm-hmm. that's, that's different from, but not less than um, intellectual articles. So I encourage right. my students to do projects that include poetry and manifestos. and That's yeah. wonderful. And now I texted you yesterday. I don't know if, if you saw my text, but I would you be willing did. to do a piece now? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. so I don't 
don't have much that's new, but I think you mentioned um, perhaps doing something that was post having a child. Yeah, I mean, open season, whatever you're fired up about. Yeah, so this is a piece that, um, that I wrote that is just about, I think, loving myself. Something we all need to do. Part of the point of the podcast. That's perfect. (laughs) Dear 16-year-old me, men have begun to tell you to smile on the street. So for the next 10 years, you will pull it out completely automatic, like a beaming pistol, like a stun gun grin. But one day you will realize that smile was never for them. And like all of your fragile things, you will want it back. So when you pack it up, pack it in tissue paper. Dear 16-year-old me, you are all blue eyeliner and moral conviction. You are a carpenter of things you believe in. You are pounding them together with Greenpeace stickers and Indigo Girls songs. But underneath, baby, you are all blue blood, Judy Bloom, broken heartbreak. You are sealing out the world before it can seep in. Your sarcasm is a glue gun. Your stubborn is just in your wiring. You have a premonition that your taboo ethics might save you. You have a strong suspicion there are girls out there just like you still. There are so many stupid things you are pursuing. You will spend so many years undoing. Don't kiss that girl. She will play your heart like a Chinese jump rope. That girl is black magic. She is full of tricks of tragic and there is nothing you can do to make her love you. Dear 16-year-old me, I am standing here in the bones of your ancient aging infrastructure. These are the ribs where your fingers will dig for fat. This is where a stone slices into your kneecap. You never stop to inspect it. Self-neglect is your best strategy and you intend to protect it. This is the liver that faces the barrel of a bottle. This is the torn aorta you inherit from your father. These are the lungs you hold hostage. These are the stitches from your last binge, from when you drank so much you could no longer stand, from when you drank so much you could no longer stand yourself. And you have no idea how many promises will be harmed in the making of this life. But no matter how much charm you harness, you gotta know this much is true. The point is not to please them but to make room for all of you. And loving yourself is not a condition of your existence, but it sure as fuck will make every breath forward easier because what happens is this. One day, there's a rape. One day, your dignity swims so far from shore, your shoulders slump like a widow and still you bounce back grinning because you've been taught to bear it. You've got a springboard of steel that will vault you towards tomorrow, spinning, doing somersaults and tossing out victory signs. I wish you could see the view from here. You are breathtaking. You are all bold voice and mistaken intention. You are heart-wrenching, baby. You are a goddamn dreamboat. Don't you think I wish I could tell you to kick back and relax until I get your shit together to show you what happens when you finally figure out what you are worth? Don't you think I wish I could just hurl you where you need to go or swoop down and knit you a nest of newborn rules and neckties or disguise you as the future until your presence blends in? Don't you think I wish I could tell you that I am coming for you? One day I will deposit you in a motherhood with a wisdom as ancient as constellations. 
I will teach you to two-step with the world you thought you had to tackle. I might unshackle your spirit. I might ask you just what exactly it is you plan to do with your one trifling and everything life. I wish I could pack parachutes in your pockets, guarantee you a softer landing towards the ground from where I'm standing. It's going to be spectacular. Wow. The sound of my two little hands clapping does not do justice to that performance. And that was fantastic. Thank you. I'm crying. Thank you. Tears over here. Also, the Judy Bloom reference made me so emotional. I know. (laughs) It was very funny. That's that's wonderful. And and what's interesting is there, you know, there is obviously so much beauty and optimism and and power and and you know l- love in that poem and there are also some very dark moments mm. in that poem and i wonder as you are now a mom and an activist and with the world what it is today has your activism or your have your feelings changed are you more fired up about certain things now that you have kids are you scared of anything or Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure if it's because I have kids or don't have kids. I was always someone who truly loved kids. Mm -hmm. So whether it was mine or somebody else's, I always was worried about our world and what was to come of it. Um, I'm also somebody who really believes in queer possibility and future horizons. Yeah. Yeah. So if anything, actually, that gives me hope because I think that more and more people are starting to see that. I know that my students absolutely, for the most part, see that. Um, and and they don't seem like cynics. They don't seem like skeptics. They seem like people who are hungry for more than what we've been told we get. Mm. Um, so that gives me great hope. Um, they're by and large anti-capitalist. Mm-hmm. They are not saying things like, well, but that's that's the way the world is, you know? Um, And so I feel really encouraged and inspired. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just, first of all, thank you so much for joining me for this chat. This was fantastic and very exciting. So you didn't have to worry about that at all. Um, (laughs) Do you have some specific future career plans, creative plans? Uh, I have one book manuscript that I've been submitting to publishers. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, That's a book on resilience and it's a critique of resilience. Sort of it's a critique of the ways in which particular populations that are most vulnerable, most precarious are being called upon to be resilient um, rather than solving the problems to the conditions that lead to the need for resilience. Yeah. That's interesting Um, because sometimes resilience can can prevent someone from taking a step back and finding a different way because they think, no, I just have to stay in and be resilient. But yeah, it's become sort of a ubiquitous mandate. Um, And it's used at all levels right now. It's not just like a sort of a popular discourse. It's also used to, to talk about refugees whose, you know, islands are sinking, like they, they need to be resilient in these ways. And it just, um, I think in the fertility world as well, people think, well, I just have to keep trying and trying. I'll do, I'll try it again. I'll try it again. I'll do this protocol, that protocol. I have to be resilient. It's going to happen. I'll try, try, try. And I think for a lot of people, sometimes taking a step back and deciding to live child-free is actually a much more powerful choice because you feel like, well, no, I can't give up. If I, if I do something different then I'm giving up and I'm not being resilient. And sometimes the best thing you can do for yourself is to walk in a different direction. Speaking of compass points. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And is there anything else you'd like to add before we say goodbye? Uh, 
I, I think just, you know, as somebody who, who has benefited from living in and through a, a queer ethic and queer kinship and has such a um, sense of possibility in terms of how we relate to other people through that, I would just really encourage us to think about family in these much more expansive ways. Yeah, absolutely. And you can hear how much fun it is in the background too. <laughs> yes, <so>. yes. <laughs> I will let you get back to that family. Okay. So. Alex, thank you so much. This was just wonderful. Thank you, Sam. It was so great to talk with you. Thanks for hanging out with Alex and me. If you're on a journey to single parenthood or finding yourself rubbing up against cultural expectations, she is your jam or your salsa jar, I guess I should say. And I'm very excited for the conversation we'll be having next week. It's our season two finale featuring therapist Savannah Sanfield answering your questions about all things identity, infertility, insecurity, anger, loss, and don't forget what happens when you actually do get what you want. That's scary too. You sent in your questions and Savannah is here with answers. So I'll see you on the couch next week. The IVFU podcast is produced by me, Sam Shaper, and Emmeline Summerton. Audio mastered by Logan Heftel. Thanks to Chris Benelli for the late night Pro Tools parties, George Strayton for marriage, and Gary Scott for greasing the wheels. IVFU is a production of Inside Voices Media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at IVFU Podcast. You can download our theme song, Freakin' Love, at ivfupodcast.com. And we'd love for you to review us on Apple Podcasts and spread the word to anyone who might be helped by these conversations. You can also be a huge help by leaving us a tip of any size, whatever you can afford, on Venmo and paypal.me at ivfupodcast. Thank you. And thanks for listening. I'm happy we shared this time together because it's all about being a family. family.